Amen. Well, again, I want to just say how grateful I am that each of you are here this morning, and I hope that you've been encouraged already as we've spent time in worship. I want to thank Mike and the worship team for leading us. Uh, One thing that I forgot to announce uh, at the beginning of our worship time, it's in the bulletin. I don't know how much of a, how many of you are faithful readers of the bulletin, but just in case you're not, uh, there will be no Wednesday night classes this week due to the Thanksgiving holiday, so just be aware of that. For uh, There won't be anything going on here on Wednesday night. Today's a big day. Uh, we're, we're completing a journey. Uh, it's been a long journey uh, over the last couple of months as we today are finishing a series of sermons that we've called Becoming Church. And again, as we've been saying, if you've missed any of these sermons, I encourage you to go onto our website or to uh, find it on our, the podcast. If you have the podcast app on your phone, you can search for Kaufman Church of Christ Sermons, uh, and you can listen to it that way as well. And the reason we've been reminding you of that is because if you've been out of town or you've missed a Sunday, uh, we're studying through the book of 1 Corinthians as we're thinking about this series, and, and there's a lot of things that uh, Paul builds his, you know, his thoughts upon one another as he writes this letter to this church in Corinth. And so we're just taking it week by week, and there's no way we can go back and remind everyone of everything we've done over the last uh, several weeks. So <clears throat> please be sure to do that if you've missed any. Finishing up a sermon series, uh, for me, always feels like a significant thing. Uh, and this study is no different. Over the last couple of months, we've, as we've been talking about becoming the church that God imagines for us to be, uh, I have been really encouraged as, as I've had the opportunity to, to study in a, in a more significant and in-depth way the book of 1 Corinthians. And I think it's been a significant series for a couple of reasons. One is, is that I think we've been reminded that the book of 1 Corinthians, though a very ancient letter written to a church that existed a long time ago, uh, it still has relevance for us. It still has something to say to us and to our time. <clears throat> But I also think it's been a significant study because there's just a lot of things that 1 Corinthians talk, talks about that are hard. They're hard to study, they're hard to talk about, they're hard to explain, uh, and it's been a really good series, I think, in helping us kind of rethink how to think about some of these, these passages of Scripture and really hear them in their context. So I want to thank Chris publicly for speaking and preaching for me last week. Uh, <clears throat> I heard that our brother JT was in the house last Sunday, and uh, Chris and JT both were pretty fired up, uh, so that's good. That's good news. I did get a chance to listen to that sermon and appreciate Chris and uh, the job he does every time uh, that he preaches. So we're going to be in the, the last part of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Chris started uh, chapter 15 last week. We're going to pick up in verse 12, <clears throat> and so I want to encourage you to find a Bible uh, either there in front of you, or if you have yours, or look it up on your phone. We're going to read quite a lengthy passage of Scripture this morning, and so it'll be important that you follow along just so you can kind of keep track. Uh, Paul is, is uh, he's very wordy in, in his language and his writing in this last, this last part of this chapter, and so uh, it'll be important to follow along. So I want to pray for us. Before we do that, also, I want because I didn't want it to get uh, lost in the mix of all that we did in the beginning of our worship time, uh, I want to recognize uh, Kevin and Cindy Mahaffey, who are sitting right over here. Will you all raise your hands this morning? Uh, they have uh, expressed the desire to be recognized as a part of this church family, so I want to invite you to join me in welcoming them to this church family. 
We are, uh, we're grateful that you guys are, want, are interested in joining us on the journey with the Lord, and uh, we look forward to the ways God's going to use your, ga- your talents and your gifts. And so I want to ask you to stand, and if you're near the Mahaffeys, I want to ask you to surround them uh, and, and put your hands on them to encourage them, <clears throat> and we'll pray for them and also for our time in God's Word this morning as we get started. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we're thankful today that you are at work and that we, we've had the opportunity this morning to see the evidence of your work in things that often maybe go unseen, like people that are making dresses, that are blessing the lives of uh, kids around this world. <clears throat> we're so thankful, Father, that we get to have a small part in that as a church and that even though that many of us may not have actually made a dress, that because we're a part of a body, we have sent 5,000 dresses to various parts of the world. And we're so thankful for those who have participated in that. And we're thankful, God, for the work that you're doing in individual lives. And <clears throat> specifically this morning, we want to pray for your blessing upon Kevin and Cindy Mahaffey. And we're thankful for their desire expressed to, to, to walk on the road of life with each other, with this church family toward uh, the end of our lives, that we'll all together arrive at that destination, having given ourselves fully and faithfully to you, helping each other along the way. And we pray that you'll uh, bless Kevin and Cindy. We, we ask that you'll uh, continue to, to bring them into this body as, as you reveal to them the ways that you're going to use their talents and gifts. And we look forward to that, and we're thankful for that. This morning, God, we also want to pray for our time in your word as we wrap up this study and this series. uh, We pray that you'll give us, again, eyes to see and ears to hear what you want us to see and hear as we study uh, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 together this morning. We pray through the all-powerful name of Jesus Christ and the church said, amen. Thank you, guys. So what I want to do this morning is to break this reading up into two parts. So I'll read the first part, and we'll read the first part together, and then I'm going to teach on that some, and then we'll read the second part, and I'll teach on that, and then I'll make some application uh, and some connections at the end. Does that sound good? All right, let's jump in in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. Paul writes these words. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead, but He did not raise Him But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. 
For as in Adam, that first man through whom death came, all die, so in Christ, the second man, all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when He comes, those who belong to Him. Then the end will come when He hands over the kingdom to God the Father after He has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For He has put everything under His feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under Him, it is clear that this does not include God Himself who put everything under Christ. When He has done this, then the Son Himself will be made subject to Him who has put everything under Him so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death, Paul says, every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord, if I, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. So we have called this series Becoming Church because we are thinking together again about what it means to become the body of Christ that God imagines. And at the beginning of chapter 15 that Chris taught on last week, Paul has reminded already the Corinthians that the most important thing, the things that are of first importance as they become the church, are the gospel of Jesus Christ, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And so Paul's desire is for the church to be a healthy, unified, spirit-filled, loving body of Christ. His desire for them, for the people in this church, is that they are different from one another, and yet that they don't just get along, but they are a body where everyone plays a role and a part in making things go, which in reality feels impossible, right? That, that somehow this group of people in this room this morning could somehow be a unified body, healthy and engaged in each other's lives in such a way that God gets the glory and honor. How do you get a couple of hundred people, a couple hundred people unified like that? How do you get a couple of hundred people to be a single unit, to be a body? The answer is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are the things that bind us. And last week, Chris said that if God can raise Jesus from the dead, what it means is that anything is possible, including unifying a diverse body of people who are all different from each other, including unifying believers from around the world, not just in this room. Do we believe this, that God can raise Jesus from the dead, which should tell us that He can do anything else that God wants to do? God can help us in our pursuit of becoming the church that He imagines. Do we think that God can accomplish what we talked about in chapter 12, using all of our gifts? Do we think that God can help us learn to forgive and love and live godly lives? Of course, if God can defeat death, then God can do anything. Nothing 
is too great an obstacle for God. That's, that's what Paul has said in the beginning of this chapter. And this is what we celebrate each week as we come together, that God did the impossible and raised Jesus from the dead. And that the cross and resurrection are what bind us together. But in Corinth, there were some who were misunderstanding and maybe not even believing in not only the resurrection of Jesus, but also the resurrection of their own bodies and their own lives. There were some in Corinth that said, there is no resurrection of the dead. And Paul's like, what? The the resurrection of Christ is a basic, fundamental Christian belief. We believe that there is a tomb in Jerusalem that is empty. We believe that there is a tomb in Jerusalem that is empty. Now, I know JT's not here this morning, but somebody should amen that. We believe that there is a tomb in Jerusalem that is empty. The thing about crucifixion is lots of people died on crosses, church. On the day Jesus died, there were other people with him hanging on crosses. But only one person came back from their death on a cross. Which means, think about this, the resurrection is what gives Jesus' cross its power. The resurrection is what makes Jesus' cross different from every other cross. And here's how Paul explains what he's... I'm going to try to summarize what he said in these, these verses we've just read together. This is how Paul explains it. He says, death is the penalty for sin. And then he says, we are all dying because of that penalty. Right? I don't know what reason you might think of that death is a reality for you and me and every human being who's ever lived, but the reason that death is a reality is because sin entered the world. It's the penalty for sin. And as a result of that, all of us, from the day we come out of the womb, are on a path toward death. The reason we all die is because sin still reigns in our mortal bodies. And then Paul says, if Christ was not raised... Right? Death, without the resurrection, let me say it this way, without the resurrection, death, which is the penalty for sin, has not been conquered. If Christ was not raised, then not only has death not been defeated and conquered, but also, number two, forgiveness cannot be given because death has not been eliminated from the picture. What Christ's death did was provide forgiveness for the sins of the world in his death. Paul says death is the final enemy. Because Adam brought sin into the world, so death became our end as a result of the actions and behaviors in the Garden of Eden. And now, because of Jesus' life and his death on the cross, it has, death has been conquered. So that life is our end. Only life is your end. That if you die in Christ, you only die on this short mist of a life that you have. But that life is the end for you and for me. And church, what I want us to hear in these words is that we have such hope. And it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives us this hope. Which is why it's so important to Paul that this church understands the resurrection. Everything is built upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that tomb that we believe is empty. And what resurrection means, Paul says, is that all of us will be raised just like Jesus. 
We will be raised from death just like Jesus. And I want you to notice something this morning in the, in the words that we read. This is such an important idea to Paul to communicate to this church in Corinth and to us. There's a really interesting thing that he talks about in these words that you might have noticed. Apparently, some people in the church in Corinth were being baptized for their dead relatives and friends, right? They're coming down front at the end of the assembly like, I've already been baptized, but I have a cousin. He wasn't baptized. Can I get baptized for him? If that happened in 2019, all of you would wonder what in the world is going on. Doug has lost his mind. The elders of this church have lost control, right? That, that's not even something we have. I mean, we could spend weeks just talking about that topic. And it, is, it, is, it seems like a really important thing to discuss, right? Like It seems like Paul should spend a little more time telling us what in the world was going on with that. And he doesn't. The resurrection is so important to him in communicating the message about the resurrection that he just sort of glazes over this, like acknowledges that they're doing it, but he doesn't, and he doesn't endorse, so I don't hear him endorsing this sort of magical view of baptism, but he also doesn't see it as a serious enough problem to debate it much with them, at least here. Why is that? My, my, my conclusion is because he wants them to grasp more than anything else, more than that conversation, how important the resurrection is. He wants them to understand. He doesn't want to get lost in talking about getting baptized for people who have already died and going down that rabbit trail, which every preacher would love to spend time doing, right? He wants them to understand that the thing that matters most is that double-edged sword of the cross and resurrection, the thing we gather to remember and celebrate when we come together around the table and we come for worship each week. That's the most important thing, but there's more. He says the reason that it matters is because how you believe about the resurrection and whether you believe that it happened at all or whether you believe it's going to happen to you impacts how you live now. This is why he says in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Right? That's a a way of saying it doesn't really matter. Live for yourself. Enjoy your life. This is all there is. Good luck. Like there were some Corinthians who weren't counting on a future resurrection. So they could eat and drink and be merry because death and only death was the thing that was on their horizon. See, this is the thing, guys. If, if, if we lack a clear vision about the end, what it does is it negatively impacts how we live now. This is why Paul wants them to have a crystal clear vision of the end and what happens at the end. In other words, if you have no belief in the resurrection, then things like how you treat your neighbors, how you treat your enemies doesn't matter. Whether you extend forgiveness or not, who cares? What we do with our time and our resources makes no difference. Live for yourself. How you think about the end of all things will impact the things that you're doing in the here and the now. But Paul can already begin to anticipate their questions because he, he, he starts in the next set of verses 
he already is assuming, just listen to it in a second, he's already assuming he knows the questions that will come, right? So let's pick up in verse 35. Someone will ask, he says. See, he's already, somebody's going to ask, I know these questions are going to get asked, so I'm just going to identify them and name them out loud. Well, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they come? How foolish, he says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. What is he saying? He's saying different kinds of plants produce, different kinds of seeds produce different kinds of plants. That's what he's saying. Not all flesh is the same. Now he's comparing the two. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, the stars another, and the stars all differ from star to star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, the body that is wasting away that goes into the ground when you die is going to be raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor and it is going to be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness because it can't save its own self and it's going to be raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, it will be raised in a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Christ, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. Amen. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These bodies, is what he's saying, can't inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. He's saying we won't all die before Christ returns. This is evidence that Paul thought Jesus was coming back in his lifetime, I think. He's saying we're not going to, they use the language sleep a lot of times, the New Testament writers, which I think communicates they all believe they're coming back, right? I love it. I love that they use the word sleep when they talk about death. We will not all sleep or die, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Amen and amen. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor, what you do in this life in the Lord, 
is not in vain. I've just preached somebody else's sermon, so I could stop. Paul now imagines. He imagines that that he's, he's taught about the resurrection, and people will start asking about specifics, like what will it be like, and will we have bodies, and what will our bodies look like? Will we be in an, uh, an upgraded version of ourselves, right? Or will I get to pick the body I have? Like, I've always wanted to have, like, six-pack abs. Will I get that chance in heaven? Will you get the chance to be a little taller? You know, maybe, sh- you know, shred off a few pounds? Like, do we get to kind of customize this thing, God? How's it going to work? And we have all kinds of requests. And you can tell that he's anticipating those questions and they're so wrapped up in the details of the resurrection that they can't see the beauty of the resurrection and how little all of those things matter. He loves them, so he deals with their questions, but part of their issue is how they're thinking about the resurrection. This phrase, resurrection of the dead, actually does mean rising of the corpses. So some of them actually were thinking dead bodies would be raised. And maybe this is how you think about it, but this is not how Paul thinks about it. And to explain the difference between our bodies and the difference between our bodies and our resurrection bodies, Paul uses a very simple illustration. He said, when a seed goes into the ground, if you and I didn't know that a seed was going into the ground, we would never guess that that would come from that. If you had never seen it happen with your own eyes and someone was like, hey, I'm going to put this in the ground, some water, some fertilizer, it's going to be this whole different thing. You've, like, you've never even imagined, you won't even imagine what it's like. You'd be like, no, nah, that's not, that's not going to happen, right? The plant comes from a seed? I mean, there's similarity on a molecular level in the seed and the plant, but you would never have guessed it if you had not seen it with your own eyes. And this is what Paul imagines that it will be like with bodily resurrection when we die. There are some similarities between the two at some level, but there will also be a substantial change, he says. And you may not have given much thought this morning. I don't know how much thought you've given to the fact that there will be a bodily resurrection, but this is what the Bible teaches. We could spend weeks just talking about this, but you know what? Even as fascinating a conversation as that is, again, what will our resurrected bodies be like? It does not deter Paul from his focus on the resurrection. Because as he says in verse 50, without our resurrection, we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Why does it matter to him? Because when what, what is perishable Our natural bodies, the seed, has been clothed with what is imperishable, our resurrected bodies, the plant, then the saying will become true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And this will happen when we die and when Christ returns, but this is also what we practice and participate in in baptism, that it's this this recognition that this is what's going to happen one day. I'm going to die and be raised to walk in a new way. Where, O death, is your sting? The answer is there is no sting. Where, O death, is your victory? The answer is death has no victory. How is this so? How is it all possible? Because of Jesus' resurrection. And this is what I want to suggest to you as we begin to wrap this series up. The place 
that you and I begin to experience resurrection is within the church. Among other Christians, among other people who have been raised to new life, who have been clothed with Christ, preparing our hearts and souls and minds for the day that He returns, which we're just about to spend a month of Advent celebrating and recognizing starting next Sunday. The resurrection of Jesus, notice this, did not fix everything that is wrong with our world. Jesus' resurrection did not put us back in the Garden of Eden or put us in some pain-free and hardship-free world. There is still death and disease and sadness and heartbreak and grief and depression and relationship struggles and addiction and hurts of all kinds. With Jesus' death and resurrection, what it did was to create a diverse, beautiful, multi-gifted, multi-talented group of people known as Christians, known as the church. And then then he did this, this thing and he launched that group of people to every corner of the planet to live their lives in his name, doing what he did, loving like he loved, treating every human being the way that he treated us first, extending radical forgiveness putting other people before ourselves. And their job in Corinth and our job in Kaufman County is to announce that death is not the last word over people's lives. And I say this in almost every funeral that I do, and many I've done for your family members, and I hope that people never get tired of it because it is so important. I think we have to repeat it so that we remember death does not get the last word for those in Christ. Our job is to announce that to each other and remind each other of that and to tell the world about it. To announce that life is possible and available to every person on the planet. And Paul believes that the place where this new life is seen and experienced most is in the church in the lives of Christians, as they gather as the body of Christ. That's why he's writing this part of this letter to a church after he spent chapter after chapter after chapter speaking into the things that are going wrong with their gatherings and their church. Every week, we participate in a sermon. Now, some of you might say, well, I'm not a preacher. I don't really really think about it. I don't think I could ever do that. But you know what? Every week, you preach a sermon. Every week you preach a sermon when you gather with this body. Paul referenced this back in chapter 11 when he said these words, <clears throat> For whoever, whoever, whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, that's the sermon, the Lord's death until He comes. What we do when we come to the point in our gathering each week when we share the Lord's Supper, is that we are rehearsing the story that we believe in, that is of first importance, that is the most important, that Christ died, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day, and that all of our hope is placed in those events. It is a table where we remember His death, certainly, but that always points to His return. And if he's returning, there's some implying that has to happen here. But when we gather around the table, we remember his death and we do it until he comes back. And if he's coming back, then it's safe to say that he's been raised from the dead. 
This is the message we proclaim, that the body of Christ has been broken for you and me. The blood of Christ has been shed for you and me. And we practice it, proclaiming it with our lives on the other days of the week as we gather each and every week and practice it here. I want to invite the men who are going to be serving us communion to begin to make their way to the back of the room. This morning, I wanted to conclude our worship time uh, with sharing communion together because it feels appropriate to think about what the, the, the most central thing we do is the, the thing that binds us together is this, this sitting around this table together and participating together. And so a couple of weeks ago, I did the, ser- the communion time at the end of the sermon as well. And one of the things that, that we did that I thought made a significant shift in how we did it was that I didn't want anybody to be sitting by themselves. So I want to ask you to stand up with me for just a second. And if you are by yourself or you see someone that's sitting by themselves, I want you to move closer to somebody so that we can share communion together. So we can be next to somebody, actually see them and be near them. And after you've done that, you can, you can have a seat again. <clears throat> And as, as the men come, after I pray and the men come, uh, we're going we're gonna to do again what we did a couple of weeks ago. And again, there's nothing necessarily special about these words uh, other than they're intended and designed to get us looking each other in the eye and talking and acknowledging the body and discerning the body of Christ. And so uh, as the, there's one twist, to what, if you were here back when we talked about the Lord's Supper, chapter 11, uh, when, the, when the plate came and, and the bread is on that plate, I had you say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. But today I want us to say, this is the body of Christ and you are a part of that body. This is the body of Christ and you are a part of that body. Okay, let's practice it together so it's not the first time you're saying it. This is the body of Christ and you are a part of that body. This is a table church where everyone is welcome to come. If you've eaten here often, you're invited to come. If it's been years since you've eaten at this table, you're invited to come. If you feel unworthy, Jesus says, please come. The body of Christ has been broken for you, and you are a part of his body. Let's pray together. Father, as we gather this morning around your table, we do so believing that Christ's death and burial and resurrection are of first importance. And we commit, God until the end of our lives or until you return, that we will do this and we will proclaim those truths to each other so that we can remember them here and and they will shape us as we go out into the world. God, I pray that this event every single week will be the thing that helps us become the church, helps us live into the the ways that you have laid out for us to live, the desires that you have for us as a body. I'm thankful, Father, for this church body. And we are thankful for your body that makes this gathering possible. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's share this time together. And then I'll get back up and say a prayer for the, for the cup. <clears throat>